0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast at RTS Washington. I'm Tommy Keene, Professor of New Testament here and Academic Dean, and I wanted to introduce very briefly a special episode for you. We were able to have Dr. Mike Allen, Professor of Systematic Theology at RTS Orlando, an Academic Dean there. We were able to have him up to our campus recently to teach a class on Augustine, City of God, and he also blessed us with a special lecture, The Attentions of contemporary theology, bringing us all up to date on matters in his discipline that I hope is a blessing uh, to you all. Also stay tuned after the episode for just some special announcements and seminary news. And with that, um, Dr. Mike Allen.
1: There we go. So as we talk about the attentions of contemporary theology, uh, we want to consider a number of diverse strands and developments that are evident in some cases, and more subtle in others, and to observe ways in which those contribute to theological exploration for a number of traditions, ways they can influence and resource those of us in the Reformed and Evangelical world, but also ways in which particular research approaches, particular uh, emphases that drive programs of theological study, can also distort our attention. And it's perhaps helpful to focus on that word in particular. More than humans in any other time, we have become accustomed to talk about attention in lots of contexts. We talk about those who have attention deficit disorder. We realize that there can be a hyperactivity that can make paying close attention rather challenging, particularly in certain contexts or circumstances. All of us are increasingly aware of our capacity for distraction particularly for overstimulation as we see screens all around us and as we are increasingly used to interacting with that which gives us constant dopamine hits, making reflection harder. Plato and Aristotle spoke of many things and all sorts of troubles of the intellectual life, but we have moved into an era where the notion of attention is especially before us. And I want to suggest theologians haven't thought about that as consciously as patiently as we might, and that attention is actually a helpful way to think about some of the ways in which good theology, in particular systematic theology, can help to discipline our reading of scripture, our thinking as Christian women and men, and our reflection on the wider world. So first, as we begin to think about the attentions of contemporary theology, I want to sketch something very briefly and somewhat rapidly, too rapidly I'm sure of the various foci of contemporary attentions, various ways in which contemporary theologians are turning to focus on this or that. The first thing we could observe in biblical studies in recent decades has been a rush of attempts to identify a center to Holy Scripture itself or to various portions thereof. And there continue to be debates, whether it's decades ago Uh, George Ladd speaking of the kingdom of God as the center of the teaching of Christ, or it's Herman Ritterboss speaking of the overlap of the ages and a certain form of eschatology as the heart of Paul's teaching. More recent times, my own colleague Greg Beale, former teacher of mine also, speaking of new creation as the center of not just Paul or the New Testament, but all of Holy Scripture. We observe... Old and New Testament scholars alike, debating what theme, what image, what focus, synthesizes and draws together all the various strands that we see across the scriptures. In systematic theology, we can observe a a rather different approach, where again and again, different approaches to thinking about doctrine have been focused not on a topic, but on a perspective. So for instance, Dr. Sutanto mentioned that I recently edited a new companion to Christian doctrine. And considering the the first edition 25 years ago, and then that which I was commissioned to edit, the biggest difference surely was the range of perspectives of people involved in the task of Christian doctrine, expanding around the globe, involving people, not just from different traditions, but different ecclesiastical traditions that converse and talk with one another in an active sort of way, but also people who are engaged in very precise programs of study. And so, for instance, we now have major areas of study focused on considering all of Christian doctrine, every topic, through the lens of disability, how everything from the atonement to the doctrine of humanity relates to thinking about the disabled and their particular experience. We have. Of course not only the continuation of movements like liberation theology or feminist theology and the like but we continue to also have further research programs where a particular form of philosophical reflection say analytic philosophy with its precise concern for definition and for logical argumentation is going to be applied again to each and to every topic of systematic theology we have A host of different perspectives that are being used, each to challenge or to further the way in which we we consider with precision the big topics of God, of humanity, of sin, of salvation. As we think about public theology, see also multiple perspectives. even, Even in the popular sphere as well as in academic public theology, people taking up a theocratic lens or an exilic lens. People using various metaphors and even various portions of scripture as the lens by which to make sense of our current situation, wherever we may be found. Um, Viewing ourselves either as elect exiles scattered, living as a, a minority seeking to maintain faithful witness, or those in the land seeking to instill and to inaugurate God's kingdom to further his project and plan. In each of these cases, I want to suggest that we can observe a focus on a particular lens, a whole range of particular lenses, where theology has, in the realm of biblical studies and public theology and also systematics, seemingly that widest of areas of study and research, it has focused on more specific tighter, narrower concerns than ever before. Occasionally, there are folks who evidence a frustration with this. So perhaps the most significant and lauded work in religious studies and in Christian doctrine in just the past year um, would certainly be Jonathan Tran's book, Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. And Tran, a professor at Baylor, is challenging the idea that We can consider Christian theology simply through the lens of what he calls identitarianism, viewing a a, a single racial perspective, um, whether it be black theology, or muhrista theology, or South American liberation theology, um, but rather suggesting that we need to add other elements, suggests that identity politics being brought into Christian theology is a narrowing lens. It's an unhelpful narrowing, he suggests, and he argues we need to recover other categories along the way, arguing in particular we need to think about class and economics, not just race and ethnicity. In one sense you might say he argues neo-Marxists ought to remember not to lose Marxism along the way. Uh, I don't mean to suggest somehow that everyone has somehow become either a neo-Marxist or a Marxist, simply that the The fervor that one book has gained is a sign that there are many people realizing that taking up one program may well be insufficient, that thinking about categories of race or of identity, categories of economics, is not going to address all the questions before us. At the same time, if you consider reviews and interaction with a book even like that one, you can see so many other people find that even trans suggestions are themselves narrow and myopic, and there are many questions. In fact, I might suggest some of the most profound questions that he doesn't address, various itches he doesn't scratch at the most fundamental level. There's rather little that God actually does in the way in which he describes the world. That's, that's a problem for Christian theology. I want to suggest in, in each of these programs, whether it's identifying a center of a part or the whole of the Bible, identifying a a particular lens through which you're going to consider and research Christian doctrine, or considering a a particular metaphor or image by which you're going to use to develop a public theology, we can gain detail, we can gain perspective, we can gain an awareness of how far too often we are far too quick to assume things to allow our own prejudice and assumption to go unexamined. And so those can all, in their best forms, be helps. I want to suggest, at the same time, each and every one of those programs from such a wide range of people, from analytic theologians on the one hand to uh, public theologians on the other, from biblical studies scholars to folks engaged Uh, in Muharista theology and womanist theology, and all those various movements, they are narrowing the attention span, theologically speaking. Perhaps it's helpful, second, to think about the way in which we can think about attention more broadly before we consider a theological response. Uh, The most significant work, the most discussed work, in brain science in the last 15 to 20 years has been that of the British scientists in McGilchrist in a 2009 book, The Master and His Emissary, and then more recently in a two-volume work appearing in 2021 called The Matter with Things. McGilchrist has addressed the hemispheric problem. You may not have known you had this, but you do. Um, We have this very odd reality that we have two brain hemispheres and making sense on why we would have two brain hemispheres. And the purpose of each of them and the relation of them has stumped people. And of course, you've probably taken in a good measure of pop psychology over the years. We know that we speak of those who, leaning in one direction, they're more rational. Folks tilting in the other, they're going to be far more emotively attuned, far more interpersonally fluent. right? We speak of being right-brained or left-brained in various regards. There are memes and cartoons and jokes regarding each of those directions and bents. McGilchrist argues that left and right matter greatly, but they don't matter as we think they do. And we can actually study what left and right hemispheres contribute because we can now actually do fmri FMRI imaging of brains, particularly brains that have suffered traumatic injury to one but not the other hemisphere. We can observe what's done when one hemisphere is no longer functioning as it was. And therefore, we can pinpoint what's happening where and how what happens here shapes what happens there. And this leads McGilchrist, drawing together uh, several hundred studies, to observe that as we think about left and right, our big problem for decades now has been thinking that they do different things. One thinks, the other feels. He argues instead there are different ways of attending, different ways of giving attention to the world, to that around us which we perceive. The right hemisphere attends most broadly to the world, while the left hemisphere zooms in and focuses in fine detail. For instance, I have a room before me with several dozen people in it. My right hemisphere is taking in all that's around, 180 degrees, from each flank to the other. The left hemisphere, on the other hand, allows me to zoom in and consider the precise facial response of a given person, to observe the way in which a sound comes from here or there. And of course, the two are interacting constantly. If I take in, with my left hemisphere, a sound over here, that's going to likely shape the way in which I see others interacting, the way in which I perceive interpersonal group dynamics. McGilchrist argues that it's for that reason, because the right hemisphere has the widest possible angle lens, you might say, because it takes in things in their connection to each other That is what's most active when we are at our most emotive, because emotion is generated precisely by observing connection or the breakdown thereof. You don't tend to get terribly emotional when you're staring at one Hebrew word and parsing its precise character. You're more likely to be drawn to tears when you're in Dr. Red's class and you're considering the sentence or the paragraph and the very idea what's being conveyed through a, a whole statement, a judgment, a poem, a claim about God. There we see that it's not surprising when we're doing the sort of thing our right hemisphere tends to do, that we are most drawn to emotive and affective realities. What we've observed in pop psychology is not totally wrong, it's just superficial. And McGilchrist's big point is that we need to realize the importance of attending to reality in both ways. If we don't constantly zoom in using that left hemisphere to catch detail and texture and find nuance, then we'll increasingly be driving with a a hazy view, as though you didn't have blinkers, as though you didn't have lights, as though you didn't have wipers, as though you were driving through a fog. But zooming in, catching a fine detail is all about knowing where to take your car or your feet, where to take a journey, where to move across a wider map. That's precisely where I think, irrespective of the validity of each and every one Professor McGilchrist claims at the level of brain science, and you'll not be surprised to know that I'm no neuroscientist and not going to speak to that, I want to suggest it's analogously helpful. For thinking about the task of Christian theology, and for observing the way Christian theologians through the ages have gone about their craft, moving between the widest angle lens, where they consider the connection between God and all things, including world and self, and where they zoom in here and there, focusing in fine grained detail, like a camera that zooms in to catch the very Details of a person's face, not simply the wider vista in which they're seated. We zoom in to study a particular pericope in the gospel according to Mark. We zoom in to catch a Hebrew couplet found in the book of Psalms. And we zoom in to study a host of other areas, philosophical, historical, scientific, that can inform the way in which we perceive the world reading not only the book of scripture but the book of nature as well. But in zooming in we're drawing in detail and nuance, color and perspective that's meant to shape the whole, for the whole is where we live. The whole is where we relate to God and to one another. I want to suggest that if that's marked Christian theology through the ages, doctrine, the wide-angle lens, exegesis, the narrow zoom lens, then perhaps we could think about how that sort of approach to theology might actually serve to help us make the best use of trends in wider theology today and not to miss the necessary center of the task of Christian theology. I suggest that there's a a key idea here that's got to orient our efforts. There are others I'd love to speak about. We'll get to just a brief description of hopefully three others at the last moment. But I want to describe one key element in commitment. And that is that doing Christian theology is about wholeness. It's about wholeness. If you consider the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he has been there amongst the Ephesians and he's spent time investing with them. We know he has further aspirations. The entire book of Acts is organized such that he's got to make it to Rome. The movement of the gospel has to go Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, symbolized by that city. And so he can't stay in Ephesus, and we know the journey must go on. But he's remained, and he tells us there, in Acts twenty twenty seven, that he has stayed until he can know in good conscience that he is not held back from teaching the whole counsel of God. In other words, there is a, a sense of wholeness that they require if they are going to be a sustainable church and he would be like a parent who had left a small child, abandoned it too early, left it to fend for itself too soon. Paul did not want to leave the ephesian church undernourished and malprepared and so he stayed over 2 years until he had taught through that whole council of god we learn elsewhere in the pastoral epistles that's not a unique game plan that's not some demand simply for that church for the church in ephesus when paul's writing later to timothy in second timothy 3 in a passage that If you know any passage about the doctrine of Holy Scripture, you know these verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know they famously begin with reference to all Scripture being breathed out or inspired by God. But they also end with reference to the fact that all of this Scripture is breathed out and inspired by God so that the man or the woman of God will be equipped for every good work. And what's noteworthy there, well there's a lot of noteworthy things, what's noteworthy there for our topic is to consider how all of Scripture is meant for preparing us for every or all good works. Now Paul's speaking, of course, of the Old Testament, but we can observe that what he says there proves to be true also for his own words and the remainder of the New Testament. Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful teaching, rebuke, correction, discipline, or training in righteousness. This idea of paideia, of formation over time in virtue and in character. And the goal is so you'll be ready for every good work, not just one that meets your personality type, not just one that somehow suits your sense of calling, not just one that might meet the the urgent need of the day, or the the most talked about demand of the moment, but every good work. But here's the catch. All and every are paired. To the extent that we don't pay attention to all of Scripture that's breathed out by God, why would we ever think that we're prepared for every good work? To the extent that all of Scripture isn't functionally building us up, Why would we ever think that we have been formed and ready to go about the entirety of the mission that God has for us? And it's here that I want to suggest we need to think not just about the canon of Scripture, the idea that we attest that there are a certain number of books of the Bible, but we need to address what we might call the functional canon of Scripture. Are we actually attending to those books of the Bible, to all of those books of the Bible, or... Are we fixing only on those that match a certain center, a certain metaphor, a certain theme? Only those that seem pertinent to a particular group or perspective, only those that lend themselves to analysis by some particular philosophical program or fit a particular metaphor for cultural engagement. Paul's concern, writing to Timothy and preparing him to carry on the ministry, seems to be the very same thing that marked Paul's own work in starting Timothy's church, that church in Ephesus, the idea of wholeness, the idea that all of scripture is meant to build up all of the people of God for every area of life. I wanna suggest that that demands a lot of examination because the Bible is a large book and because we find all sorts of reasons to find our attention narrowed. It can be narrowed by our tribe. Different churches, of course, zero in and zoom in upon certain things and not others. Perhaps most obviously, we know, ever since the Marcionite era of the second century, we continue to see there are churches that ignore the entirety of the Old Testament. It's the most obvious canonical amputation. But there are many others, churches that only pay attention to the red letters, or churches that only pay attention to the Gospels, or Christians that only listen to the Apostle Paul because, goodness, he seems the most evolved and philosophically astute. We can find that our tribe lends itself to certain texts or perhaps to certain ideas. We are defined by this doctrine or by that focus. We can be defined and limited by our origin story, spiritually speaking. If we came out of legalism or if our tradition was birthed in a particular controversy, that can so focus our attention that we often miss other things for us in God's holy word. We can be shaped also by that which is around us, the tyranny of the urgent, the blinking lights on screens and in the screams of our neighbors. We do need to attend to the challenges of the day but those of us studying Augustine this weekend will find that however much he's patiently and carefully going to address what is a seemingly earth-ending crisis just before him, he's also even more patiently going to insist that we pay attention to the totality of God's Word, that we not lose sight of the wholeness that is meant to build us up, to equip us, As we think about wholeness, though, we've got to think about other things and we don't have time to explore all of these in the same level of depth, but I'd suggest three others briefly. As we explore the the totality of God's Word and over years and decades find that our functional canon comes increasingly to actually match the given canon, that we become more fluent and familiar with all that God offers for us in Holy Scripture, We'll also find that our priorities, secondly, have to be challenged. Priorities matter. Not all of the Bible is equally pertinent to the formation of Christian men and women. It's all inspired of God. It's all true. It's all authoritative. It's all life-giving. And yet, that genealogy isn't as pertinent as that account of the crucifixion. Think of Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians. They are as messed up as it gets like watching a reality show, and Paul patiently addresses so many skirmishes. He talks about divisiveness and schism. He talks about personality cults. He talks about manipulative leaders. He talks not just about sexual impropriety, but a failure of the group to be capable of addressing that. He talks about the worship war, then, which none greater could be imagined, where the rich rich are getting smashed and the poor, they are left without anything to eat or drink, only to watch in shame. He writes about so many things, and he addresses them all. They're not beneath him or his God to teach on. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he nonetheless, at the end of all of that, still can say that he passes on to them that which he received, which was of first importance, that Christ died, that he rose, according to the scriptures on the third day, that he was seen by many before he ascended on high. Paul is quite capable of adjudicating that which is primary from that which is secondary. And one of the great gifts of paying better attention to the wholeness of scripture is we come to realize where our false emphases are, where our false priorities lie, where increasingly we are too much shaped by our own curiosities as opposed to God's kingdom concerns. And so a second area we find God disciplining our thought and imagination as we pay more attention to the totality of his word and are equipped more and more to grow mature and full is that our priorities are shaped increasingly not to match our preference, nor the pressing issues of the day, but the pertinent truths of God and his holy word. Another area that we find that paying attention to wholeness will shape invariably over time is that paying attention to the totality of holy scripture will lead us increasingly to see the distinctiveness of its various claims. The Bible, of course, uses your words to convey God's word. It uses the words of humans. It uses human language. Some centuries ago, people did in fact think that the New Testament, for example, was written in Holy Ghost Greek. That's simply because we hadn't yet discovered the manuscripts that would show that it was the most koine or common of Greek. It uses, even in some of its loftiest of claims, very ordinary terms. And so you can go across the river, And you can see words like justice. You can see words like peace. You can see them etched in stone. And you can see them on any number of op-eds every week. And yet we find they appear in God's holy word. And in all of our daily lives, we use other words. I love a good cafecito. And I find that basketball is a good thing. The Lord is good, and God is love. And when Holy Scripture says God is love, it's not quite the same as my delight in Cuban coffee. And when the Lord is named as good, it's not exactly the same as saying that basketball is superior to baseball. It's good. Words are used analogously. It's not enough simply to say that they're used in a special way. We've got to appreciate increasingly The distinctive character of those words and that only comes by reading more widely seeing how they're portrayed across the totality of god's word we see this perhaps nowhere more pointedly than on the lips of jesus himself when we encounter him speaking in the great sermon on the mount he begins with those beatitudes happy we speak of being happy all the time people are pursuing happiness on friday night i assume right here, all over the area. Jesus describes happiness or the good life, but he characterizes it in rather different ways, I imagine, than what's happening, the various cocktail receptions and parties around town. He characterizes it in ways that seem to go inversely or contrary-wise to our expectations, as to those of the Roman and the Jewish worlds of his day. And we only see that by reading on Seeing the way in which meekness or poverty of spirit or peacemaking get enfleshed as we read on in the Gospel account where we learn that peacemaking involves not being nice, involves dying sacrificially for people who are enemies of you. It involves doing that which Christ himself embodies and manifests on our behalf. And so a second great gift of paying attention to the the wholeness of God's word is increasingly perceiving the distinctiveness of the various terms that it uses. Learning to talk Christian, learning to hear God's word, not simply with the prejudiced ways we use those terms, whether it's the term redemption or the term love, whether it's the term justice or the term holiness, but to hear them in ways that actually befit the wholeness of God's revelation. And then finally, A third gift of paying attention to the wholeness of God's word is that it it demands of us increasingly integrity. (coughs) I don't just mean purity. Integrity goes beyond speaking of innocence or purity or uprightness. It speaks of this idea of not being fragmented, not being Jekyll and Hyde, not being Janus-faced, not being one way with your people, another way with the stranger. Not being one way with the haves and the powerful, another way with the have-nots and the powerless. Not being one way outwardly that others can observe and another way in the deep recesses, the darkened recesses of your sinful heart. And here too we see again, reading the totality of God's word reminds us of the significance of growing whole, growing complete, growing up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We can see this as we read passages like Galatians 3 where Paul can address a people who knew they began by grace, but he asks them, having begun by the Spirit and by faith, are you now going to live as though by works? In other words, they've fragmented their life. They've considered their conversion to be God's gift and now Their communal life together is going to be something that's earned by fit and merit, by other conditionalities, by the right sort of ethnicity or the particular form of religious practice. They're going to live in a way that is marked by a legalism of a sort, though they would never confess that of their standing before God. They're Janus-faced, and Paul's suggesting throughout those chapters that That's a failure, and that it's a failure of misreading the wholeness of God's word. So to respond to it, he doesn't just quote Jesus. In fact, he doesn't quote him at all. To address it, he goes back to the Old Testament, and he quotes from across the Pentateuch to show that they have paid attention only to particular verses, but not to the totality of the law. And so they've reveled in salvation by grace alone, but they've fallen into a community that's marked by works. They failed to follow the way of the Lord. And what we learned from that, from Matthew 5, from so many other passages, is that paying attention to the wholeness of God's word doesn't just address the perspectival needs of a, a given identity group. It doesn't just address those texts or themes that lend themselves to a particular philosophical program It calls us to wholeness, and that means integrity, to being challenged in every area across the board. That we would know that resurrection has to take hold of the totality of our life, and that means every bit of our imagination, every area of our mind, every recess of our heart, every term that we employ, and everything that we see. I'd love to explore each of those three results further. Time precludes. But I hope you can see just a bit of how they allow us to commit ourselves to something, not to ignoring people who bring expertise employing this or that research program. No, we ought to attend to them. They may well enable us to catch fine-grained detail that we'd otherwise miss. They may point us back to examine again where we have failed to listen to the wholeness of God's word, the distinctiveness of its call, the priorities of its teaching, the integrity it demands of us as Christian sisters and brothers, but that we should never simply allow ourselves to myopically be reduced to those programs. And I'd suggest that that's why systematic theology continues to have a pertinence, precisely because we do put God in a box. We do pursue this line of inquiry or that center. We do view things from my perspective or from that research program. And the questions of systematic theology are always the questions of wholeness, the protocols of demanding and disciplining our thought so that we continue to be challenged by God's word, by its wholeness, by its priorities, by its distinctiveness, and by the integrity that it demands. And we've got a few minutes left, and I'd love to explore whatever unclarities I've offered, but also whatever practical protocols might flow from that, especially those of you who are students growing into theologians right now. So we've got, what, 15 minutes for Q&A, maybe? Right, that's interesting. Um, interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can do the, the, the most basic of things. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home and before too long in a, a pastor's home, um, and more specifically, a Presbyterian home. And one of the great gifts of both my house first and then my education growing up, and then my college experience going away um, was both to find the concerns and priorities and convictions of my own tribe encouraged and um, robustly held without irony, and yet an eager curiosity to learn from whomever else can be engaged. And that was encouraged at home by parents and others, by mentors and teachers in school, by professors in college and graduate school and colleagues later. Um, and in a very real sense, uh, that is a, a constant challenge. Um, Dr. Sutanto had mentioned that, that Dr. Scott Swain and I have written a number of things, and, and Perhaps a most significant book that we've worked on is, is called Reformed Catholicity, this idea of trying to pay attention to the breadth of, of God's gift to us in scripture first and in the Christian tradition second. And, and saying that matters is one thing, learning to listen well and to be challenged and to engage things thoughtfully is a, another matter. And that's something that I find continually to be a, a constant challenge to gain the kind of patience and diligence and humility and teachableness, and just, frankly, the kind of ear and eye to be able to benefit from Bernard as well as Owen, from Thomas as well as Bavinck, from Augustine as well as Calvin or Luther. And uh, hopefully that continues to be a journey. In mm-hmm. the introduction, you did a lot of theological themes. And right. you and you, you decided to run systematic theology. Do you think right. it's particularly helpful in pursuing homeless or articulating the right. description? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, there's a whole second element of McGilchrist's description of how thought and attention works. That is, the, the right hemisphere is the master. The left is the emissary. I was really hoping Tommy Keene would be here to hear me say this. But anyhow. Um, uh, this doesn't mean theologians are better than New Testament scholars. Um, <laughs> but it does mean that, that the way that our brains work, and I think the way any reading of scripture works, actually, is that you're always contextualizing things in larger forms. And that means increasingly thinking in broader synthetic fashion, uh, it has to be prevalent. But it also has to be checked, because it can be using terribly misperceived contexts. And so there's a symbiosis that's necessary. Um, I I do think, particularly when you think about our cultural moment missiologically, uh, that precisely as as most of us are living in contexts that are going to be increasingly biblically illiterate and morally post-Christian and culturally pluralistic in a a more radical form, that It's precisely their systematic, wide-angle perception becomes more important, uh, because the very words that are used in a a verse as simple as John 3.16 won't make any sense. At least they won't make Christian sense in talking to someone. Um, And so being able to paint a broader picture becomes very important, Um, I think, anew. When you live in a setting where biblical literacy is higher where theological fluency is encouraged, not ignored or curtailed by other institutions, uh, then in that kind of setting, and there are many of these still around the world, uh, in that kind of setting, you can coast without systematic thought intentionally. Um, But to the extent that that's not the case, uh, the, the work of exegesis just becomes almost impossible on its own. So. Um, I do think for, for missiological purposes, we're at a moment where systematic thought becomes incredibly dire. Yeah. Right. right, let me answer with a different analogy. Um, probably like most of you, I've, I've had some severe, severe medical issues at times, and if you haven't, you know relatives who have. And Of course, when you're trying to identify and diagnose a problem, you need specialists who are going to be capable of bringing the eye of an oncologist Uh, or a very particular kind of oncologist, uh, or this or that specialist. Uh, But of course, the reality many of us face is you find yourself talking to this and that specialist, and someone says, but I'm an endocrinologist. I can't think about x, y, or z. (laughs) And there's a a failure to connect things, right? Um, And oftentimes, we, we suffer from a sense of how the whole body suffers to the extent that, that the expert here isn't in any way in conversation with the, the lens, the tools of imaging and of study there. Um, theologically, I think we can have the same sort of thing. You do need specialists. You do need advanced equipment and a diagnosis that, that requires a kind of fluency in this comparative linguistic study or in that philosophical reflection. uh, But the crucial thing is to be aware of the limitations of each and of the various interconnections. So for instance, to be able to always ask, what will and what won't this line of study catch? What will or what will it won't uh, allow me to perceive and thus be challenged to, to intellectual theological repentance by? Um, and, mindful of what its benefits and limits will be, what other lines of study do I need to be in conversation with if I want to grow whole and mature and not amputated or imbalanced. And so that, that, of course, requires for most of us, not being renaissance men or women who, who can do it all, uh, that requires community. Um, communities of expertise, uh, communities of scholars, to be sure, but communities of Christians more broadly. And that's surely one reason why Paul, you know, in Ephesians 1, he prays that you would know the power of God's love. And by the time he loops back to the same prayer in Ephesians 3, he's very emphatic, knowing the power of God's love isn't a job for a solitary soul. It's, it's the task of, that you together, being rooted and grounded in love, would be capable of perceiving the height, depth, width, and breadth of God's love for you in Christ. And so being capable of conversing with one another about what this person's expertise can add, but the limits to what it'll bring before you, and how that has to be complemented by others. We too often think adversarially, uh, or not at all, about others. And that's where I think... The, the job of the, the systematic thinker is actually not to be an expert of a thing, but to be a conversation broker. And perhaps because I'm a middle child, I'm drawn to doing that, um, keeping people talking of sorts. Um, but uh, it seems to me that that's the unique challenge of somebody who's going to try and focus particularly on the broadest connections or the widest angle lens of perceiving God in relation to all things, How to how to observe and converse with all those different expertises. Yeah.
0: You also talked about systematizing around or through a a particular lens that I thought I understood you to mean you could get at the whole through that kind of a perspective or lens. Can you um, suggest efforts have been
1: successful? Uh, I can't, because I don't think it's successful as such. (laughs) Um, If you were to tell the story of biblical studies, uh, I mean, it would be a parallel version of the identitarian form of systematic theology, uh, in that just as there are so many perspectives or approaches to viewing doctrine, uh, so there are also just as many centers claimed to be in Holy Scripture. Um, And I don't take from that that, goodness, there's a lot of people who've missed that covenant or kingdom or the gospel or apocalyptic is the right one and everyone's just wrong. But rather that the, the question itself is not helpful. But that the studies and the research actually can be quite helpful. So I'm not convinced that apocalypse in Christ is the organizing theme of the entire New Testament. That strikes me as... Very strange, to put it kindly. Um, But a lot of scholars doing a lot of work on that theme are able to bring out elements of particular books in the New Testament, which you wouldn't be able to hear in the same way apart from, from thinking that theme. Similarly with new creation or kingdom, or even something as broad as covenant. Covenant doesn't bring out every element of every book. Uh, The Bible doesn't, in the same way, sound in each part of the canon. And so I would suggest we can glean from those studies the good of each of them, um, but the form of the the question that somehow any one of them could be the be-all or end all that's the myopia that I I think we find our attention unhelpfully narrowed.
0: Mm-hmm. It was just so
1: intriguing to me, I didn't read it, but, that, but right. I can imagine that that could cover a lot of territory. It's a great book by Jeffrey Wainwright. I've read it. It's wonderful. Lots of good material. Uh, there are tons of things it doesn't and I would suggest can't quite say using that category. Which isn't to say that you can't somehow logically relate everything in the Bible to doxology. Simply, if that's your organizing lens, you're likely going to miss or underperceive other elements. Right? Um, It would be akin to somebody. uh, I'm reminded of of the great theologian Chris Rock. Um, In one of his earlier theological tomes, he was commenting on growing up and how his father thought Robitussin was the solution to every medical problem. That will solve many conundrums. Robitussin will either fix the problem or put you to sleep, right? which eventually gets you right. But when you've got a broken arm, it it doesn't help. right? Um, And it may actually, on certain occasions, when it's just putting you to sleep, actually mask what's really going on. It may actually hurt or or at least hinder perceiving what the underlying problem is. And I would suggest if we take one theme, whether it's kingdom or worship or covenant or apocalypse, it will help in certain cases, because that's the matter at hand. Uh, in others, though, it will hinder us hearing the text in its own terms, and other themes that would be more pertinent to us exploring that and receiving that. Um, that'd be the reason for my hesitancy. Yeah. But go read that book. It's a great book. Yeah? So in, the, in your study of
2: Priorities and integrity, Mm -hmm. like, like what? Where have you drawn like your influence? Like, not only throughout all history, whether it's Protestant,
0: Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. Orthodox, but just maybe even contemporary scholarship. Right.
1: Like, where you like see people doing that? Right. Where it influenced you? There's there's a host of people who are inspiring in that regard, attempting to think broadly in that in that way. Um, you know, you're hearing from a number of Bob Inc. scholars and, and certainly like no human, as with every human, neither he nor anyone succeeds totally, but, but that's very much a concern of his. You can think of other recent theologians like John Webster, for instance, trying to, to think of God in relation to all things and to pay attention to not just Christology or creation theology, but to the totality of what God's word says and again not not being able to work that all out in one person's lifetime but but aiming at that trying to to train theologians to ask about that Augustine's a great example and that's the reason for talking to this at the beginning of a weekend looking at city of god because Augustine has the biggest crisis we could imagine to address the tyranny of the urgent is real and the eternal city has just been sacked for a weekend and uh You know, uh, it's in some ways akin to living on September 12th in people's perception. Um, And he addresses patiently, with great care and expertise, the immediate questions and responds to specific criticisms of Christianity. He doesn't dismiss that, like Paul writing to Corinth. He deals with all of that, but he doesn't restrict himself to that and he goes on to, to pay attention to the whole of Scripture and to provide a wider, more nuanced way of perceiving, doing some detailed exegesis of passages like Genesis 1-3, to three, or 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and following, mm-hmm. um, but also this very wide-angle lens looking at literally the totality of Scripture and post biblical history. So that would be as strong an inspiration as I could possibly name. Yeah, Isaac. Question. Make it good. No pressure. So one might uh, imagine uh, you know, uh, somebody receiving some of this
0: criticism being myopic, and they would respond by saying, "Well, that's just because you're not X. You're not, you know, you're not. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the status quo benefits you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you. You're afforded the ability to not have to
1: worry about whatever the issue is." Mm-hmm. Do we, how do we respond to that criticism in Sure. Yeah. Um, that is, that is a, a common animating concern, particularly on the, the identitarian diversification of theology. Um, that's where the example of trans books actually interesting. Somebody's still pursuing that line of concern, but observing that an identitarian reading is, in his case, an Asian-American, It it limits hearing a whole host of issues, felt needs in and of itself. Um, And so I do think there's an imminent critique you can offer of that saying, your issues aren't all defined by any one feature of life. Um, Humans don't work that way. Communities don't work that way, which isn't to deny that various features are themselves real issues and may very well actually have real tragic consequence. And that that thinking through that with disciplinary rigor uh, in in the form of certain experts and research programs is going to serve all of us well or or can and should do so because many of us won't have the time, the capacity, or the familiarity to do so. Um, But I think we could offer not just that eminent critique, we could also simply point to the, the totality of God's word. And particularly in times of crisis, the... The imagination of the people of God is widened, not constricted. Right? Again, to go medical, when you're in a severe medical crisis, it's precisely then, when there's raw pain, that your world shrinks. <laughs> it's very hard to think about the person in the next room. You're, you're thinking about your abdomen, or uh, you know something in your vertebra, uh, or a, a brain bleed. You know. Uh, what we observe in scripture is precisely, particularly in the moments of utmost crisis, that's when God responds, not by narrowing in to focus on the immediate issue, but by widening the perspective of the people of God. So uh, the problem of evil does not come up in the prophets, but the teaching about God's sovereignty, transcendence, and holiness, and his ultimate purposes does in a way like nowhere else. Um, similarly in the book of Revelation, you know, that's, that's not a time for talking about uh, sort of a martyrological kind of perspective on, on how woeful early Christian existence is, though it, it really was, but for this apocalyptic imaginative rethinking of how God is amazingly bringing promises to fulfillment and glory is, is coming as with Christ through suffering. Um, and so I, I think the very form of how scripture responds to crises ought to shape our individual responses to crisis in our life, but also communal ones. Which isn't to say you, you don't talk about challenges where individuals, communities suffer in, in profound ways, um, but you're, you're called not to zero in. In fact, scripture suggests you will, and so you're disciplined to widen your gaze.
0: Well hey everybody, one more thought, we're all going to be at the Evangelical Theological Society
1: Annual Conference in San Antonio at the end of the month of November, so maybe we'll see you there. Um, Three of us are presenting, so let me just go ahead and go around the table, Dr. Lee, what are you doing at the ETS, and I should also say you're sticking around for the Society of Biblical Literature as well, also in San Antonio at the
0: end of November. So what, what are you up to at the conferences?
2: Uh, I am going to be both at ETS and SBL. uh, um, I'm presenting a paper at ETS. It's um, part of a a larger uh, programmatic work I've been doing on the Abrahamic Covenant, particularly in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and to share some thoughts there um, on how the great nation promise is central there in that passage as well as in the history of salvation. I'm also going to be going to uh, SBL. and participating in uh, uh, a little, few little things there.
1: Thanks, Peter. And how about you, Gray?
2: Yeah, thanks. I'm very excited to be there, um, t- attending both ETS and SBL, or rather AAR, the American Academy of Religion annual conference right after ETS. I'm excited to hear Isaac Whitney's presentation, on Herman Bovink, and Reform Orthodoxy on the theology of the body. Isaac Whitney is part of our advanced studies program. Uh, cohort here at RTS DC, very proud of him as a student, Uh, and I'm glad that he's presenting already at a context like ETS. So that's going to be Tuesday, I believe, at about 3, 3. 3.30 p.m. in San Antonio. And then I will be attending and presenting within a panel on the Neo-Calvinism introduction book that we published with Lexham Press. Um, Cam Clausing organized a wonderful panel for this occasion, which would include Vincent Baycote at Wheaton University, Drew Martin out of Covenant Theological Seminary, Uche Anazor at Biola University, and also Gail Dornbos at uh, Dort University. All good friends, and I'm really excited to hear from them and to respond to them in that panel. I'll be looking forward to our very own um, Mike Allen, who's going to be presenting in our Reformed Theology History Group at AAR. i in the steering committee for that particular group, and this particular year, we are having a session on confessions, so it will be very exciting indeed.
1: That's great. Lots going on on the ST side.
0: Lots going on. Tom Keen. Yeah, I'm doing two things. One would be um, this presentation on a um, little paper on c- uh, cognitive metaphor theory. Is it um, CMT? Is it uh, it's true, but is it useful? Mm. Um, so for those who don't know, cognitive metaphor theory is just one of these It's a fancy term for you build metaphors out of your basic uh, experience, and it's a natural, fundamental process of of not only language, but just understanding. Um, So with that uh, observation, does that actually help us interpret Scripture? Uh, Is it a tool that we can use to uncover new knowledge, or is it just a description of of what we do? So that's... uh, Paper one, and then on Wednesday we're doing this. Uh, Greg Lanier and Will Ross at RTS uh, RTS faculty have organized a, a book on the Septuagint, uh, the authority of the Septuagint, and I'll be presenting the New Testament uh, component of that. That's great. With that paper, so excited about that.
1: All right. So if you're out there, Paul Jean and I will also be at the conference. So if you see us in the book room, come up and. Grab one of us. We'd love to meet you and look forward to seeing you in San Antonio.